Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. With midterms happening today, we're facing a potential flip in party for Congress and a new generation of right-wing political leaders. As such, it's an excellent time to reflect on the past, present, and future of the conservative movement. Today, I'm excited to introduce Matthew Continetti, who has just written a book on that very topic, The Right, The Hundred Years' War for American Conservatism. A prominent journalist and author, Continetti is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and give us a review. You can also find us on Twitter at Madison Program and find out more about us and what we do at jmp.princeton.edu. With no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So your book, you know, it's got this sort of broad, ambitious title, The Right. And when I was graduating college um, and looking at jobs in D.C., define conservatism was kind of this gotcha question that I would sometimes receive in interviews. Um, and so I'm guessing you obviously you've written a book about it. You've put a lot more thought into it than I had at the tender age of whatever I was, 21. And part of why I struggle so much to answer it is because that definition feels like it's been in flux the last couple years. So I guess my question to you would be, one, what is your answer to that question? And two, would you agree with the assessment that that definition has been changing? Or is your book kind of a history of one constant concept over time? I think the first thing to recognize is that um, the right, in my title, is any figure or set of ideas or institution opposed to the left. Mm. So it's the broadest possible category. Mm. The right is larger than conservatism. Right. So within com- conservatism and within American conservatism, which is different from, in my view, European conservatism, there are many different contesting factions. And so kind of the founder of uh, conservative historiography, George Nash, in his book, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America since 1945, Mm -hmm. starts off by saying, look, if someone calls himself a conservative, I'm going to count them in my book, right? (laughs) I'm going to use people's own Mm -hmm. self-description. I think that's a fairly good rule of thumb while writing about conservatism or writing about this larger category that I call the right. But I will say that I think that American conservatism exists to defend the American founding. Other conservatisms um, defend inherited institutions. So when the uh, term was uh, coined in the 19th century, it was meant to describe the figures who defended the Ancien Regime against the revolutionaries. And the Ancien Regime in Europe had a king. It had an established church. It had titled nobility. Well, in an American context, we have none of those things. America was also established prior to the fall of the Ancien Regime. We have our own system of government. We have a Declaration of Independence. We have a Constitution. We have the political philosophy of the Federalist. In my view, American conservatism exists to defend those ideas and those institutions uh, against challengers, uh, mainly from the progressive left, but more and more these days also from a populist right. So you start your book in the 1920s. And it's sort of an interesting time 
to choose to start it because at least the way the 1920s has gone down in history is that it was a point when the American right really stood for small government and that was sort of the main governing ideology for the Republican Party, capital R, and not as much for sort of more social conservatism. So would you say that that sort of broad strokes the way it's been portrayed in history books, that that's an accurate depiction of the right in the 1920s? And why, given that, is that the point when you choose to start your book? That's a great question. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, You know, the Republican Party of the 1920s uh, did take stands on social issues. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We consider immigration kind of a combination of an economic as well as a social issue. Of course, the Republican Party in the 1920s was restrictionist. The Republican Party in the 1920s tended to be for prohibition. Yeah. <laughs> Major social issue. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, I wouldn't say that they were they neglected social issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was It's hard to say that you were a social conservative in the 1920s because you need you need the left in order to be a conservative. Mm-hmm. So the types of social issues we argue about today, whether they are related to um, sex and gender and family life really weren't at play when I start my book, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the major social issues of the time was, of course, the debate over um, evolution in the schools, as exemplified in the Scopes trial in 1925. That was more social. It wasn't political because the government was not, the federal government was right. not as involved at all levels of American public life as it as it later became. And that, I kind of believe, gets to, to your second question is why the 1920s? Yeah. One thing I found in researching the history of the right is that people kind of just assume that it was kind of born fully formed after World War II. That's not really the case. Hmm. In order to understand what the right was like after World War II, you have to go and understand the 1930s and recognize that American conservatism as we know it today was really formed in opposition to Franklin Roosevelt's domestic and foreign policies. The revolution that the American conservatives of the 20th century thought that they were fighting against was the revolution of 1932, the phrase they often used, the FDR's election and the New Deal. And in order to understand why they were so freaked out, for lack of a better term, by FDR, you needed to understand what came before it. And so that's really why I begin in the 1920s, to give the reader a sense of what politics was like before the New Deal. Hmm. 1920 was a, it was an important election because um, Harding and Coolidge really rejected the progressive philosophy that had been floating kind of in and out of both parties for the past several decades. Um, but Harding and Coolidge never really called themselves conservatives. They called themselves normalcy men mm-hmm. or Americanists, right? Um, in fact, there's a wonderful letter that happens later in the 1930s uh, between Herbert Hoover and one of his um, correspondents. Now, Hoover, uh, who was Secretary of Commerce for much of the 1920s and then becomes um, the president in 1928, he um, had considered himself something of a progressive um, going into the presidency. Well, he's extremely frustrated by the Depression, 
during the 1932 campaign, he becomes very worried about the direction that FDR wants to take the country. And after he leaves office, he is more and more an opponent of FDR and the New Deal and the centralized bureaucratic government in Washington that FDR is creating. And he writes this letter to a friend complaining that all of a sudden people are calling him a conservative. And he says, well, I never really thought of myself as a conservative. I think of myself as kind of a old-fashioned, lowercase l, liberal, right? Standing for freedom, individual rights, free enterprise, limited government. But, you know, if they're going to have to call me a conservative, then that's basically what I'll become. And so you see there how important the 1930s was into the self-fashioning of um, of the conservative um, political and intellectual movement. And, you know, we're talking about the New Deal, which has had such a varied intellectual legacy in American history, and particularly the right, it seems, has kind of, according to your genesis of the right, was sort of forged in opposition to the New Deal. And yet the right has had kind of a up and down in terms of its relationship to the New Deal, you sort of describe in your book over the course of its history. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and... and maybe a slightly more provocative question, but where are we at with that today? Because Mm -hmm. particularly kind of post-Trump, post-COVID, it seems to me, like if I had to hazard a guess, that we're in a more kind of pro that sort of intervention stage right now. Well, when the uh, conservative movement really came into its own, when it understood itself as a movement, um, with the beginning of National Review Magazine in 1955, with um, the beginning with the publication of Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative in 1960, the draft Goldwater movement that led to his nomination in 1964, conservatives understood themselves to be against the New Deal. And that was what they wanted to overturn. In fact, they they opposed or criticized uh, Dwight Eisenhower, a very popular Republican president, because he had not done enough to roll back the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Right Over time, as the New Deal programs became more entrenched in our society, um, that kind of lowercase conservative disposition to say, well, you know, (laughs) uh, getting rid of Social Security, getting rid of workers' compensation, getting rid of unemployment insurance might be a, um, a paradigmatic ideal, as William F. Buckley Jr. would say. But the steps between here and there are so many that we should refocus our energies, right? And so for many years, um, efforts were made to say, well, if we're not going to abolish the New Deal, maybe we will reshape it in order to make it um, more accommodating of individual choice and um, competition. And so then you saw movements to introduce, say, personal accounts to Social Security. There was always a um, recognition um, among uh, presidential aspirants uh, that messing around with Social Security uh, was a bad idea, yeah. simply politically. And so, F- so Ronald Reagan, who had voted for FDR four times, when he runs for president, he is making sure to assuage people's fears that he's going to take an axe to the New Deal welfare state, and um, th- that is the genesis of his. Mm-hmm great refrain during the 1980 debate with Jimmy Carter where he would say, there you go again. And he'd say, you keep saying I'm going to do this, but I'm not actually going to do it. And there's also a great diary letter entry uh, where Reagan is complaining about all the people saying he wants to go after the New Deal. And he says, no, that's what, 
they don't understand. I'm what I'm against is the Great Society, hmm. Lyndon Johnson's interesting uh, expansion of the welfare state, which in the mind of Reagan and others was f- much more intrusive uh, in t- into uh, people's lives than the New Deal was. Hmm. Uh, the New Deal was a bunch of you know uh, civil engineering projects and basic kind of social insurance plans. The Great Society kind of um, affected people where people sent their children to school. It um, affected this condition of the cities. Um, and that's kind of, that's where Reagan um, and other conservatives wanted to focus their energies. Finally, today, uh, you're right, this debate has erupted again. Um, and uh, the libertarian tendencies in conservatism uh, have been um, suppressed uh, which means that there are now voices saying that, in fact, conservatives should embrace the New Deal legacy, embrace bureaucratic centralization. Um, I think this is uh, it's anti-conservative, and I think that the, these voices are beginning to recognize they're not actually conservatives. Um, there's something else, and they should go do their own thing. So speaking of group tensions, there were some that you brought out in your book um, that it kind of surprised me that, you know, such great kind of thinkers and people who have such a strong legacy on the right didn't always necessarily get along. And and I want to ask you about three in particular, um, Barry Goldwater, Russell Kirk and William F. Buckley. Um, And Goldwater has such sort of a legendary status, it feels like to me on the right, even though he was never president, I feel like people sometimes talk about him as though he was. And people think of him not just as a political figure, but also an intellectual figure. His conscience of conservative has become a classic. And William F. Buckley and Russell Kirk, it seems like today are often appreciated, at least in parallel, if not kind of intersecting circles. Um, The Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which Buckley founded, which you mentioned in your book, in my own experience, are quite big fans of Russell Kirk, or at least, you know, read and discuss his work a fair amount. So talk to me a little bit about what the root was of tension between sort of the more Goldwater and Kirk wing of the party versus William F. Buckley. Um, It's an interesting choice of uh, characters. Um, uh, Much of the tension among the the three was uh, personal rather than Hmm. political. Uh, Russell Kirk, much more of a traditionalist than either uh, Buckley or Goldwater. Uh, Russell Kirk, a believer in culture and history and um, a skeptic about uh, what he would call uh, Manchester liberalism or mm. just free market economics. Uh, but he supported Goldwater in 1964 um, and worked with Goldwater, um, uh, uh, supplied him you know, references for speeches uh, because Goldwater was an opponent of, limit, uh, of big government and mm. Russell Kirk also opposed big government. Um, where Where Goldwater kind of annoyed Buckley and Kirk was that um, once he became the Republican nominee in 1964, mm-hmm. he basically cut out the conservative movement from his campaign. National Review and Kirk, who had, was a columnist for National Review for 25 years, had played a big part in making Goldwater the leader of American conservatism. When he becomes the nominee of the GOP, however, he basically 
is afraid of being associated with National Review. Uh, and so he takes advice from a different set of conservative thinkers. Um, uh, William Baruti, one of the presidents of the institution where I work today, the American Enterprise Institute, Milton Friedman, mm. Robert Bork was an advisor to Barry Goldwater. Um, and so that kind of led to some kind of personal, you know, uh, kind of annoyance, I think, on the part of Buckley and um, Kirk. But all in all, they were very uh, allied with, with Goldwater. Between Buckley and Kirk, too, there was some, I think, personal mm. um, rivalry, which was, you know, Kirk published his conservative mind in 1953. It became a bestseller. He became the face of conservatism for a couple of years. <laughs> and then in 1955 is the National Review. Um, Buckley becomes a sensation. Uh, by 1965, he's running for mayor of New York. He becomes a kind of a media celebrity um, with Firing Line, his program in 1966, and of course in his debates with Gore Vidal during the 1968 presidential campaign. I think Kirk kind of, uh, you know, didn't like the idea that all of a sudden the face of conservatism was this other this other figure, William F. Buckley. And it was interesting, in 1982, uh, Kirk assembled for uh, Viking a, a portable library of conservative writing. He did not include anything from William F. Buckley Jr. <laughs> and I think that was a very deliberate uh, choice um, because he did include, say, writings from Irving Kristol, who was a neoconservative thinker and probably more unlike Kirk than even Buckley was in some ways, right? Um, so I think I think that among the three figures you describe, most of the disagreements were just kind of personal, you know. I mean, it, and it is it, it's it's a in the scheme of things, this is a relatively small group of people, uh, and and so you kind of rub up against one another and you know butt heads. Um, there are other thinkers, of course, in my book. Um, and political figures who have much stronger um, ideological disagreements. And so you bring up the, the neoconservatives who are also kind of, uh, it's interesting, I guess, how they come in and out of the story. And I guess I, I want to talk a little bit about them. <laughs> and my first question, I'll share an anecdote, but I'll keep it anonymous. Um, but I was once at a dinner with um, a prominent neoconservative thinker. Um, and as we were sort of going around and asking questions at this dinner, one of the questions he was asked, what, which he did not like at all and reacted very badly to, was, would you say that neoconservatives uh, were the last to come and the first to leave from the conservative movement? And that's a very sort of uh, controversial, I guess, way of putting it. But talk to me about kind of how the neoconservatives entered the scene um, and I guess... How would, you, how would you respond if you were asked that question? Yeah, I mean, it's a, um, I don't think it's quite right to say that the neoconservatives were the last to arrive. Mm -hmm. I think um, populist, the populist right and the religious right actually became part of the coalition after the neoconservatives. Um, so there's a great misunderstanding about neoconservatism. Um, when people hear the word neoconservatism or neocon, they associate it with um, the Iraq War of 2003 and the most prominent supporters of that war. I mean, it, it is a historical fact that that war was 
widely supported by not only majorities in both houses of Congress, uh, majorities that included the current president of the United States, who is a Democrat, um, but the American people as well. So it is just simply false to say only the neoconservatives got us into Iraq. That is just wrong. Um, however, neoconservative thinkers uh, did formulate many of the arguments for intervention and not necessarily the justifications, but kind of the the theory of the invasion, the strategy of the invasion, and definitely the strategy of the surge of troops to Iraq that happened later in George W. Bush's presidency, which in fact stabilized the country. However, this group of neoconservatives is, in, by my count, the third wave of neoconservatives. The, the original neoconservatives were a group of ex-radicals. They had been radicals while they were in college who uh, then became Cold War liberals. They were liberal Democrats, but they were very anti-communist in the 1950s and early 1960s. But because of the late 1960s and the um, kind of the chaos on American campuses, the development of the counterculture, um, these thinkers began to move right. Of this wave, the only one who became a self-professed Republican was Irving Kristol, the um, social thinker. So that's wave one. And uh, by, you know, Irving Kristol is being commended in the pages of National Review by the late 1960s. Um, wave two were a group of uh, Democrats. Who, they started out as Democratic Cold Warriors. Um, they were t tough anti-communists. They had never had a radical phase. They were just Democrats who were very tough on communism. But in the 1970s, they begin to become um, repelled by the Democratic Party's embrace of McGovernism, of a sense of retreat from the world, um, a pullback withdrawal uh, that um, was advocated by George McGovern, who lost, but then uh, implemented by President Jimmy Carter. And it, throughout the late 1970s, this group of Democrats who were cold warriors, they opposed arms control agreements. They thought that um, Jimmy Carter's human rights uh, policy was schizophrenic and contributed to the collapse of anti-communist allies in Iran and Nicaragua. They thought that American defenses were languishing, and they thought that America was being humiliated on the world stage. And so they eventually came to support Ronald Reagan's candidacy. Many of them remained Democrats for many years into Ronald Reagan's administration. But by the end of the Reagan administration, this group of thinkers, which include people like Norman Podhoretz, Gene Kirkpatrick, Elliot Abrams, Richard Pearl, Paul Wolfowitz, Charles Krauthammer, they were basically Republicans. It's the third wave of neoconservatives um, who did not ever start out on the left. Right. Um, they were Republicans. In fact, many of them were the children of prominent neoconservatives mm -hmm. um, who, um, after the Cold War, developed an idea of America as a benevolent hegemon on the world stage, someone who needed to be, America needed to be involved everywhere, and America needed to use military force to um, achieve its uh, strategic aims, and among the strategic aims was the promotion of democracy. And America should not be uh, afraid, according to this worldview, to use uh, preventive action. And 
also to change the regimes in countries that are hostile to us. And this was the philosophy that informed the thinking of uh, figures like William Crystal, Irving's son, Robert Kagan, the son of Donald Kagan, the classicist uh, and historian of ancient Greece, um, Max Boot, um, to some degree John Podhoritz, the current editor of Commentary. And what's funny about them is even though they were never ex-anything, they're, they're now basically ex-Republicans because right, <laughs> they've right, moved right. out of the party uh, when the party rejected those views uh, with the nomination of Donald Trump. So I think it's just important, I know that was a mini lecture there, but I do think it's important (laughs) that we say neoconservative, we're specific about what we're talking about. Um, And uh, that's why I still think that that question, uh, you know, um, which I'd heard before that idea, you know, the last to arrive and first to go, is not quite correct. The, The thing is that by the mid 1990s, the, uh, original waves of neoconservatism neoconservatism were saying that really it didn't even exist anymore. Right, right. It had been integrated into the mainstream conservative movement. Um, But then it's really only in the past several years that um, the party and large portions of the movement have turned against this third wave and the feeling is mutual. And uh, (laughs) that's where where (laughs) things stand today. Yeah, there's a piece of that that I want to press you on a little further. You sort of mentioned at the beginning that you think that the religious right in mm-hmm. some ways came after yeah. the neoconservatives. Yeah. That's a pretty provocative claim. Well, when when I, do you think the religious right joined? Oh, I can tell you, 1979 with the formation of the moral majority. I, I, obviously, religion has always been part of conservatism. Right. To be a conservative means that you are not hostile to religion mm-hmm. at the least. I mean, in many cases, devout religious believer, but you believe that religion is an important source of knowledge, of meaning, of direction, of ethical insight, and that it's important to the fabric of society. That has always been the case. When I say religious right, I mean an organized faction in American politics that conceives itself as having kind of religious arguments that they want to be in the public square. And this is a movement that happens in the late 1970s, kind of around the same time as that second wave of Mm -hmm. neoconservatism. Millions of evangelical Christians come to believe that Jimmy Carter, who was one of their own, betrayed them. Mm -hmm. And they begin a mass exodus from the Democratic Party into the Republican Party under the aegis of the Reverend Jerry Falwell and his moral majority. And moral majority was important to Ronald Reagan's victory in 1980. It definitely shaped the Republican Party's attitude and support for the state of Israel in the later decades. Um, so that's what I mean about how yeah. they they were they're kind of the last to arrive and increasingly the most important, I think, part of the uh, conservative coalition and Republican Party. Hmm. So. Uh- I guess that kind of segues to bucket list question that I've had in some ways, um, something that I think people talk a lot about. But in like elementary school and such, um, I was sort of given this narrative over and over that the parties switched at a certain point, usually conveniently before the Civil Rights Act, et cetera, to explain why Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. And yet maybe the more uh, charitable way of putting it 
would be. And yet the modern Republican Party is very heavily based electorally in the South. Um, And what you've said seems to kind of hint at that uh, because you sort of mentioned at least religious conservatives kind of switching sides. How much truth is there to that narrative? Well, I think there's no question that um, the conservative movement in the 1950s and early 1960s opposed the civil rights movement. Um, Barry Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, William Buckley Jr. not only opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, he opposed the Civil Rights Acts of 1957 and 1959, which were passed under Eisenhower. Um, And he made uh, what are clearly, in my view, racist arguments against civil rights, um, um, unlike Goldwater, uh, who, who, whose only criticisms were constitutional. Um, there's no question about that. I think that fact and the South's general transformation into a Republican stronghold has contributed to this idea that it, the rise of the Republican Party in the second half of the 20th century is due solely to racial backlash. And I reject that thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the trend lines of the Southern turn toward the Republican Party happened much earlier. In 1964, the political analyst Sean Trendy, in his book, The Lost Majority, goes into this. He finds places in the South that were turning against Roosevelt as early as 1938, mm-hmm. mainly for economic reasons. right? And we know, just as a fact, that as people get wealthier, they tend to be more Republican. And the South was very poor, very poor. I think it still is the poorest region of our country, right? But as it grew richer over the course of the 20th century, it, like everybody else, started turning toward the Republican Party. Um, It is a fact that, yes, Goldwater only won deep South states in 1964, Mm -hmm. plus his home state of Arizona. And that has suggested that somehow, you know, there was racial animus that contributed to his support and that uh, contributed to the rise of the conservative movement in the subsequent decades. There's no denying the fact that there are racists in the United States and there are racists in the Republican Party. There are racists in the Democratic Party. I like to remind people that George Wallace, um, the Southern populist, was a Democrat. Um, now, he was a Democrat who appealed to many f- sections on the right, right. Well, to which they would say the party switched, right? <laughs> well, but he never switched. Right, right, right. So I'm, gonna, I'm getting to the switch <laughs> yeah. now. What's also interesting is the, the movement of the South coincided with the movement of just the country right. to the Republican Party. So if you consider um, Nixon's landslide in 1972, Reagan's landslides in 80 and 84, Bush's landslide in 88, those were national they weren't just Southern. Right. And the South was part of it. But it's not as though that the, uh, you know, it was the entire country was racist under this rubric, though I think some people on the left would say that. No. I think race is always part of the American story, but it's not the whole. I think we have to look at other factors. I think we have to look at the fact of stagflation. Uh, voters hate inflation. They blame the party in power in the 1960s and late 1970s, that was the Democratic Party, for inflation. Inflation is not a racial issue. I think we have to look um, at the foreign policy. Uh, there's no, t- there's no um, discounting how worried Americans were about their place in the world. 
1980, after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan during the Iranian hostage crisis, there is a sense of profound national humiliation. Mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan and the Republicans began to stand for uh, kind of a reassertion of American pride in the world stage um, and, a, and a projection of American strength overseas. And that's not a racial explanation. And finally, I would say the real turn of the South happened in the 1990s and early 2000s. When you think about the switch in party affiliation, sure, there's the presidential votes, but you're talking about the fact that into the 1990s, into the 2000s, even today, I mean, we have Georgia, right? We have a Democratic governor in Kentucky. There were still Democrats, right? But what you find in the 1990s especially is a lot of party switching. So like Alabama Senator Richard Shelby, right? He was a Democrat, but now he, in the 1990s, he became a Republican. So that's really when the, the region flipped, was during the 1990s and then continuing into the early 2000s, is famously represented by the Georgia Senator Zell Miller, longtime Democrat, who in 2004 left, ostentatiously left the Democratic Party and addressed the Republican National Convention and said, I support Bush, right? You know? So were we more racist in the 1990s than we were in 1960s? I don't think so. So I think there too, there are just other factors at work. And I think one of the major ones is the economy mm. and the sense that the Republicans are the party of economic aspiration and opportunity. Um, and when they play up those themes, they tend to attract votes from, from people who are rising and up up the economic ladder. I think we see the same thing today with the Hispanic vote. Yeah, Which definitely. is the, the realignment of the Hispanic vote is Hispanic Americans are um, going up the income scale just like my forebears, the Continentes, you know, when they were Italian immigrants and the children of immigrants did in the 20th century. And as, as you... As you rise up and you tend to you tend to turn toward the Republican Party so all of this is a long-winded way of saying that race is part of the story but there's a lot more to the story yeah uh, I'm interested because I feel like the Republicans have had for a long time this narrative of you know people make more money and they start voting Republican and yet I feel like or not feel like I I know in the last couple of years that trend has really switched and a majority um, of I forget what top percent, but the top couple percentage of America. Yes. Well, that's are when now you have the money. That's and, okay. <laughs> so, so we're it's talking a about like a parabola. It's a question. <laughs> yes, it's a question okay. of people. Are you on the ascent? Right. Then you're going to be more uh, open to the Republican Party. But if you're at either end, right? If you're if you were mired and if you're stuck in poverty trap, you're you're going to be um, very Democrat. But if you're very rich. Well, you don't really care anymore. You have yours, right? right? You have another set of issues. You want to change the world. You want social justice. You become much more um, Democrat, which, which we know by the voting standards. So it's that, it's that middle that has traditionally been the, the basis of the Republican Party mm-hmm. and will continue to be, I think. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because my, my understanding is that it's only in the past year or a couple years that the the people in America in the top, I forget if it was 1% or 5%, are actually now officially majority Democrat. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm definitely Trump accelerated it. Right. I, I, think, I think we saw it happening. Um, look, in 1997, uh, David Brooks, who was at the Weekly Standard at mm-hmm. the magazine at the time, wrote a cover story called Rich Republicans. Mm-hmm. And he went to Winnetka, Illinois, and he was talked about going down these beautiful homes, and he realized that 
you know, this is a classic Republican community, but all of a sudden it's being very open to Democrats. Mm. That's because wealthier Americans just started diverging from the Republican Party mainly on questions of moral value and Mm. religion and public life. That was the beginning, right? And that has then since progressed into a whole other panoply of issues, including environmentalism and racial justice. So... Um, this trend has been going on for some time. Donald Trump definitely accelerated the trend, right? Donald Trump was like a bomb. It dropped in the middle of American politics that switched a lot of the ways that American politics was conducted. And whereas we had often been polarized by um, by race in America, he all of a sudden made us polarized by education. If you had a, if you have a college degree or higher. You are very likely these days to be a part of the Democratic coalition or an independent who may waver between the two parties. If you lack a college degree um, and and you're and you're a, considered white by the U.S. Census, or more and more Hispanic, or even some movement among African American males, mm-hmm. you're heading toward the Democratic Party. So, with this switch toward a politics of education. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen this division emerge where those uh, highly educated or highly schooled mm-hmm. high wealth um, winners in the global economy are part of the democratic coalition, are, are, are the central part of the democratic coalition. It, it's interesting that you bring up this educational divide. And you mentioned in your book what I thought was an interesting aside, uh, that the National Review stayed away from educational issues. And I sort of wonder, um, because it seems to me at this juncture on a lot of social issues, uh, the right is fighting a very defensive battle kind of across the board. Um, And there are many issues that we've just sort of given up on wholesale that are sort of they're just entrenched in the American public. That's how they feel about it, period. Um, But even the issues that we're fighting so much about, you know, are in play in states like Florida. But many of the most populous states like California, it's sort of a foregone conclusion. Um, And so I wonder in in your study of the history of the right and in the strategies that the right has taken over time, if, if you think that the way that the right has kind of strategized about which issues to really invest in, which issues to tackle, or the way in which they tackled the issues that they chose, um, has in any way contributed to that kind of route it feels like on, yeah. on these more moral questions? I, well, I, um, I take a different view mm-hmm. of that analysis. Um, you and I are speaking a few months after the Supreme Court uh, reversed Roe v. Wade, uh, which was a central focus of the pro-life movement yeah. and the conservative movement for almost 50 years. That is a win. There's a lot yeah. changing. Um we have um, Supreme Court decisions involving uh, union uh, membership, the Janus decision, individ- uh, Second Amendment rights to bear arms with Heller and the most recent decision in the last term, um, a major decision on the, um, uh, the nature of the bureaucratic state or what we call the administrative state and the EPA decision. Um, I think constitutionally, uh, the conservative judicial movement, the conservative legal movement is on offense. I think, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to, there's a sense of 
profound pessimism a lot on the right, especially on the very online right, mm-hmm. um, that I think is just kind of misguided. I, I mean, you can't judge the entire the condition of American society by the partisan composition of California. I mean, California is important; it's a huge economy, but it's kind of a basket case, and it's always been kind of unusual. I mean, that's we view California as kind of like you know too much sun, right? It's mm-hmm. the weather, you know, kind of new age spiritual things. It's Hollywood, it's Silicon Valley. It's you know, I mean, it's important, but it's not America. I mean, it's just not. It's it's part of America. Um, New York, New York is a dying state, and a city that is um, that that is uh, that is not go- going in the right direction. And what's happening? Well, we were speaking um, a couple weeks before the election. Yeah. S- suddenly, the polls have closed for governor of New York. It's because voters are saying enough of this on the issue of crime. Um, then you get down, okay, you mentioned populous states. Well, then you have Texas and Florida. I think New York is actually lower than um, uh, th- those two. I'm not, I'm not sure um, the actual ranking, but um, they're both governed by Republicans. And it seems to me that the governors of both those states are in something of an arms race to see not only who can most annoy the left, <laughs> but also who can best create a red state model for governance. Um, Arizona just implemented a revolutionary uh, school choice program yeah. under Governor Doug Ducey. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the Democratic governor, uh, gubernatorial candidate was scared off of uh, touching it in recent weeks. I don't think she's going to win the election, but in any case, she was even saying, oh, well, maybe I'm not going to go after it right away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are victories for conservatism if you just look for them. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so I, I just kind of have a different take on the situation. Mm-hmm. I'd also say that it's not like there's some like unibrain on the right. 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 I mean, we already talked about how there are a lot of different disagreements. There are a lot of different schools, a lot of different strategies. And so it's not as though there's some, you know, kind of, uh, you know, Avengers like headquarters orbiting the earth where all the conservatives meet and say, this is what we're going to do next. I'll also, by the way, uh, we're speaking a few days before the Supreme Court is going to hear um, the affirmative action cases. Mm-hmm. And with the high probability that affirmative action is going to be ended in the next year. If that happens, I think that's a big win for the yeah. conservatism. So I don't think we should apply kind of utopian expectations uh, to the realities of American politics in order to kind of justify um, radical tendencies. I, I that. That that's just my my view. I mean, I guess one issue where you don't see much traction is um, the same sex marriage. But I, it's you have to change public opinion before you're going to be able to change the um, same sex marriage, and it, that might be something like the New Deal, where mm-hmm. Americans just become so used to it, and there becomes so many. Um, uh, equities involved that it just is going to remain in place. So, you know, it's it's like that T.S. Eliot line that, you know, there are no lost causes because there are no won causes. That hmm. This is life. This is politics. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some. And we shouldn't have the utopian expectation that we're going to win everything and we're going to win it right now. The utopianism belongs on the left, not the right. Well, that is a really 
interesting and stirring note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. Thank you. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Matthew Continetti on the history of the American right. That's all for today, and we'll see you next time here on Madison's Notes. Thank you.